And this morning, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, I want to read, I'm going to read a bit, and then we'll break, and then we'll read a bit, and then we'll break. How does that sound? I'm reading from the New Living Translation, <clears throat> not too far from the NIV, um, but I think it says it a little bit uh, differently so that maybe I can actually say some of the words. <laughs> the Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soko in Judah and Azekah at Ephesus Demim. No, I did not just cuss. Come on, that was funny. Every time I read that, I giggle, sorry. Um, <clears throat> Saul countered this by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley in between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds. He wore a bronze leg armor and carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. His shaft of the spear was as heavy and as thick as, as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 115 pounds. Wow, that's heavy. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted, shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Let me pray. Father, your word is truth. Your word speaks to us today. It is life. It actually is living and active, Lord. It's applicable even today uh, for our needs, for our, for our lifestyle. And Father, I want you to speak through your word this morning. Lord, I get out of the way. It's not about me. Holy Spirit, it's about you. You bring the words that you want to be said. You bring the points that you need to be made. Father, show us that as your army, we have a purpose and we have a plan. Show us as your army, nothing can stand in our way when you've got our back. Lord, we love you and we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody says? Now, most of us have all heard the story of David and Goliath, right? So David is this uh, little shepherd guy, and when he, when he goes out to the battle lines and he sees all this mess happening, he, he's, he's enticed, he's, he's excited, and he's like, I can whoop that giant. I can get him. And so we all know that story, right? And so whenever, whenever the word Goliath comes out, what's the very first thing you think of? Goliath? David, okay, what's the second thing you may think of? Goliath, huh? Okay, let me see. Goliath is a giant. There you go. I could have set that one up a little bit better. I understand that. <laughs> Goliath is a giant. I want to point something out, and I, I, I'm praying that I can actually um, bring some, some closure to this part for myself. So make sure that you guys are, are listening and feedback to me if you need to. But we ultimately see God's supernatural in the natural. Because when we think of giant, we think of David as a 13-year-old boy. That's what he was at the time. And, and Goliath. 
this nine-foot-tall, like, superhuman, right? Uh, many scholars actually say that Goliath not only was over nine feet tall, but he was over 500 pounds. Here's some comparisons. Shaquille O'Neal, seven-foot-two, 334 pounds. Big guy. Yao Ming, seven-foot-eight, 344 pounds. Okay, basketball players, for those of you who don't know who those guys are. Basketball players. Those dudes are big, but Goliath was over nine feet tall, weighing in over at 500 plus pounds. The dude could dunk with both hands just standing next to the rim like this. No jumping. He didn't have to have hops. And he was white. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but what I want you to notice here in the word, in verse 4, this is how God portrays him. This is how we should begin to understand who Goliath really was. Goliath, a Philistine champion. The Bible doesn't call him a giant. Now, now it's needless to say, a nine-foot person is pretty large. I would call that person a giant if I saw one. You know, I'm pretty sure Cole, when he grows up, he'd be like, look, Dad, a giant, you know. Um, but the Bible does not describe him as a giant. The Bible describes him as a champion. Now, what's the difference between a giant or between a champion and other folks? The heart. A champion never loses. A champion never loses. He said, listen, I am the champion, down in verse uh, 8 and 9. Goliath calls out, he says, why are you all coming out to fight? I am the Philistine champion. The Bible doesn't call Goliath a giant. He says that he's a tall man of stature. Some, some versions of the Bible actually say that he was tall in stature or large in stature. You know, he was standing over nine feet tall. But there's a difference that happens when you begin to think about, okay, David in size versus Goliath in size. That's a miracle. That's something that's just awesome. But now, take a closer look. David a young boy who has never been in battle versus Goliath who has been in many battles and has never lost. Looks at it, you look at it differently now, don't you? It's not just a miracle of size. No, one's, no one compares to God. When God's got your back, nothing's too big. Nothing's too big. No problem, no situation. Then physically no person was ever too big because when God's got your back, he's fighting your battles for you. Not taking any of that glory or any of that miraculousosity away. That's my word, thank you. Not taking away any, any of the miraculous there. I want you to see something different. David had never been to battle. He was tested, yes, by the lion. He was tested by the bear. And, and, and God, supernaturally, he overcame those two. But he was technically never in battle, never in an army battle. And so for an un polished, un, you get the point? To go and defeat an undefeated person is where the, the real miracle lies. Because you see, some of us in our life, and I'm going to say our because I'm going to pick on me first, have champions in our life. We have problems that we feel like we just can't overcome. 
I've prayed for that before, God, and, and I just can't overcome it. And there's this champion in your life that you keep facing and you keep coming up against. And the Israelite army was scared. They were terrified. They were shaken in their armor, the Bible says, because of this champion. And it was one guy. Now, the Israelites and the Philistines, they didn't get along, okay? They didn't get along at all. And we'll break down some of that part here in a little bit. They didn't get along at all. So when they saw this champion, when they saw Goliath, they, they started to see uh, that maybe the battle is going to be harder than what we thought. Because if you see in verse, verse 10 here, he says, uh, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man, a man, who will fight me. Send me a man. Saul called it out, or uh, uh, Goliath called it out. He said, listen, we're going to take care of this today, right here and right now. And unpacking this a little bit, the Philistines and the Israelites were like this all of their life. Because the Philistines wanted to be God's chosen people, but they weren't. Who was? The Israelites. The Israelites were God's chosen people. It's where the temples were made, and, and they sat in Judah, in Israel, and, and the temple was there, and the Ark of the Covenant was there, and God's presence was there. Uh, earlier on in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6, you'll see that the, the Philistine armies defeated the Israelites and captured the Ark, brought it back to their camp, brought it back to their city. And because they were not the people of God, because they were not the children of God, plague happened. Death happened, pestilence happened, famine happened, and they said, we got to get rid of this thing. How do we give it back in chapter 6? And so the Philistines and the Israelites were always like this, because the Philistines wanted to be God's people, and they couldn't be. And so they battled and battled and battled, even under the prophet Saul, before there was ever, or uh, excuse me, Samuel, before there was ever a king, they battled. And then the, the, the Israelite people said, you know what, we need a leader, we need a king, we need a ruler, someone who's going to help us take down these Israelite people and, and, and be done with it all. And so God anoints Saul king over Israel. And now we're at the battle lines of Saul and the Philistines one more time. One last time. Because Goliath was the one who put out the call. If your guy beats me, then all of us Philistines will be your slaves. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of people. That's a lot at stake to put on one man's shoulders. But if I beat your person, then all of Israel, now all of Israel includes who? The king. All of Israel will become our slaves. And then Goliath is showing his ignorance here, and you will serve us. He kind of is redundant there. You're going to be our slave, and you're going to serve us. They might not have been a smart people, but they were big. <laughs> we also see here in verse 8 through 10, a type and shadow of needing a Savior. A type and shadow of needing Christ, because Goliath called out and said, one man needs to come and save you. One man needs to come and fight this battle for you. Send one man against me. One man. And because of one man, everybody has sinned. Because of one man, 
all have been forgiven. So you see the type and shadow here? You see the, the, the imagery of, of Goliath saying, you know what? You send me one person, and if that person can defeat me, then we're yours. And the great thing about the end of the Bible is he's already defeated the devil. So we're already his. But that's another story. Verse 11 says this. It says that Saul and the Israelites heard this, and they were deeply deeply terrified. Wes, why is that that so significant? I said it before, I'll I'll, I'll say it again. Saul and the, the armies of Israel, the people of Israel were God's chosen people. God's presence was with them. God's blessings were with them. God's provision was with them. God's plans were with them. From the very beginning when God said, I call you Israel and you are now my people, Saul was chosen as the king. Now the king has a mandate to protect and to govern and to guide God's people, Israel. And when this, when this man, you'll see later on David calls him a, a, a pagan man, an uncircumcised man, comes out and starts defying the ranks of God, defying the armies of Israel, What we need to understand is that who's the leader of the army of Israel? It's not Saul. It's God first. So not only did he mouth off to the people of of Israel, he was mouthing off to God. Goliath was saying, you guys are nothing but pigs. How many, um, this is going to show some oddities here, how many Monty Python fans in the house? Okay. My favorite part is the French knights up on the wall, and they're taunting the king. And he says, do away with you, you silly English knigget knights, right? You know, your, your mother smells of elderberries. You know, I could, just, I could just imagine how the taunting was going from, from, you know, from Goliath to the children of Israel, to the armies of Israel, you know. And uh, your mama milks yaks instead of goats or whatever. I mean, just... It had to be funny. You know, I almost wish I could have been there just to hear it. But I think I was born in the right era. <clears throat> anyway, um, so this taunting is going on. And the Israelite people, the word says that King Saul himself and the Israelite army were scared. They were terrified. They lost for just one moment the sight of who the head of their army is. They lost for just one moment through all of the tauntings whose army they really are. See, that makes a difference. They lost for a second whose army they really are. And so I'm going to continue on reading here. Pick it up in verse 12. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ethratite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema, Shemai, actually some translations call him uh, Shammah, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three older brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth between so that he could help his father out with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days and 40 nights, every morning and every evening, the Philistine champion 
strutted in front of the Israelite army. I'm going to stop there. For 40 days, morning and evening, the Israelite army got up, ate their Wheaties, put on their armor, sharpened their spears, sharpened their swords, and went to the front lines and stood there. They were ready for battle. But for 40 days, morning and evening, they just stood there, ready for battle. See, the biggest part of this story isn't David slaying Goliath. The other half is, for 40 days, God's people stood there, ready for battle. Now, I don't know about you, but a, a, king, has, a king has a mandate. When Saul became king, he had a mandate to do one thing, grow his kingdom. You now are the king. You own this much land. Grow your kingdom. Because whenever you fought somebody and you overtook them and you took their land and you took their bounty and whoever did not get killed became a part of your kingdom. Even as slaves, they're still a part of your kingdom. And Saul, that was his mandate. He was the first king. He needed to grow his kingdom. And for 40 days, no one, including Saul, fulfilled their purpose. No one, including the king, did anything but stand there ready. And it says, for 40 days, Goliath came out and he taunted the armies of Israel. Now, Israel's up on one side, the, the Israelite army's up on one hill, and, and all of Israel and Judah's behind them, and the Philistines are on the other side, and, and there's a bunch of other country behind them. Some of it belonged to the Philistines, some of it belonged to other people that the Philistines were still in battle with, that they said. The, the actual, if you really get into breaking down what the Philistines were doing, they didn't even have their full army there. They were off building a kingdom elsewhere. So you got the Israelites on one side, you got the Philistines on the other, and you have the valley in the middle. And that's where the battle lines were drawn, right there in the valley. And so for 40 days, morning and evening, the Israelite army did nothing. They didn't battle. They didn't fight. And actually we'll see a little bit later on in the word that they went from standing there, listening to his tauntings, to when Goliath stepped out of his tent and they saw him, to running in fear. See, when you look at something long enough, it gets a little bit bigger. And I'm wondering how big Goliath actually was. You know how when you tell a story, you know, I went fishing the other day. And I caught a fish and it was this big. And then you tell your buddy, you know, the other day I went fishing and it was a bass and it was this big. And I went, I went snapper fishing, right? I wanted the red snapper and dude, it was like. And I had this really special bait, right? That I knew that every salmon would hit on. And I had a king salmon that was like this. But you see how the story grows every time you tell it? I'm kind of wondering if the story kept getting told over and over again for 40 days, how large it actually grew. I wonder how much truth there really was to this champion 
being able to defeat them, one man versus one man. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible's wrong. It says he was nine foot tall. But what I'm saying is the buildup in their heart between standing there ready for battle and on the 40th day, they would see Goliath and they would run away in fear. Talk about breaking down your defenses. Talk about breaking down whose you are by staring at your problem for too long. There's a little cliched saying, I don't know if you've heard it or not, um, but in, instead of telling God how big your problems are, why don't you tell your problems how big your God is? And see, that's something that the Israelite army could have actually done if they would have remembered whose they were. They would have remembered that they are the army of Israel. And for 40 days, 40 nights, no one fulfilled their purpose, not even the king. So Wes, how does that translate today? How do we get anything out of that today? A lot of us as Christians took a stand when we accepted Christ. My seventh birthday is when I took my stand. I remember that night very clearly. I took my stand for Christ that night and I said, you know what? I'm gonna live for him all the days of my life. And I put on my armor I took my stand. But it's the next step that everybody's afraid of. Once you're geared for battle, you have to fight. Once you're armored for battle, you have to fight. See, we have the mandate, the same mandate as a, as a king in the past, of growing God's kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, he says, now you have all authority given to you. So go and make disciples. There's your mandate right there. The commands are love God and love people. Here's your mandate. You have the authority. Now, a lot of people say, go out and make disciples, but they forget the first verse. You have all authority because of Christ. Now go and make disciples. So you have a mandate. So a lot of us uh, Christians, a lot of us churchgoers, because there's a difference, can get up in the morning and put on our armor and, and we, we get out there and we're ready for battle and we know what's coming. But none of us fight. Wes, how do we fight? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 says this. Know that you don't fight against principal or against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness that you cannot see. In heavenly places, the Bible puts it. You know in your work area who's not saved. You know in your kids' school life who's not saved. Hopefully, you know in your neighborhood who is not saved. And it is our mandate to grow God's kingdom. How do you grow God's kingdom, Wes? How do you score for the kingdom? The only way you score for the kingdom, everybody, is to win souls. It's great that we can put up a church and have church. But if it doesn't grow in souls, if we are not seeing salvations, then are we doing what the Israelite army did? We put on our armor, we put on our stuff, and we're ready for battle, but we don't fight. And I... I'm one of the biggest uh, proponents of that. I have, I have done that many, many times 
where I go out and it's called playing church. Think in the last 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, who have you led to Christ? That's our mandate. Not to just stand there all pretty like I'm an awesome Christian, but it's to go out and get dirty and fight and shed blood. The way a king grew his kingdom, and I hope you like this, he went out and killed people and took their stuff. Now, we can't kill people today and take their stuff, so please don't say, the pastor said so. Please don't do that. That's the disclaimer on the CD. Okay. We cannot go out and kill people and take their stuff, but what we can do, what we should do, is kill the sin nature of the people around us. We need to kill the sin nature of ourself first. How do you do that? You give your life to Christ. How do you do that? You pick up your cross daily. How do you do that? You beat your flesh down daily. You do things that you don't want to do. Wes, that's not so easy, but it's your mandate. God never said building his kingdom would be easy. If it was easy, he would have done it already. He would have said, okay, all of you, you're my people, and now it's done. And everything else. But he gives us this mandate. He gives us this opportunity. And, and the tie-in I want you to see is that if we aren't fulfilling our purpose as God's army, if we are not fulfilling our purpose as going out and killing the sin nature of others and sharing the love of Christ and sharing the light of the world with others, if we aren't fulfilling that mandate, then we are neglecting everyone else's freedom in Christ that we have. God's freedom, the freedom that you share, the freedom that you have in Christ is not for you. You can use it. You can bask in it. But the freedom you have is so that you can share with others. If we aren't out there fulfilling our purpose, fulfilling our mandate to go and make disciples, then we are neglecting other people's freedoms. You see that little tie-in right there? Let's get back into the story. Pick it up at verse 17. One day, Jesse said to David, hey, take this. He didn't say hey. I'm sorry. That's my conversational style. <laughs> he said, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they're doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. That's the perception that the father had because he had no word from his sons. So you see, he said, bring me back a report because I know they're out there fighting. But that was the perception. That wasn't the reality. And just because we sit in a church, just because I sit and worship in a church, doesn't mean I'm fulfilling my mandate. That's the perception, sometimes more than the reality. Still going. So David left the sheep with another shepherd, and he set out early the next morning with gifts 
excuse me, with the gifts that uh, Jesse had given. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army, where are we at? Sorry, I lost my place. Just as the Israelites' army was leaving for battle, for the battlefield, with shouts and battle cries. Pause. It's awesome to come and worship together. It's awesome to have the battle cry or the chant, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. But when you get to the battle line, do you stop there? Is it a saying? Is it a routine? Is it a tradition? Is it something that we've done and we do because we've always done? Or is it what really rallies us, what really gets us going to push past the battle line, to push past the ideals of doing church? Okay, pick it back up. Verse 21. Soon the Israelites and the Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper and the supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with him, Goliath, the Philistine champion, still doesn't call him a giant. Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Here's where the story turns. Right here. Then David heard him shout his unusual taunt to the armies of Israel. This is where the story turns around. Because David has always been a man of action. David has always been the one who steps forward to take on the task at hand. David heard him shout. As soon as the Israelites saw him, they began to run in fright. Here's what the Israelites are saying. Have you seen this giant? Get that. The people, the armies of God were saying, have you seen this giant? Already defeated in their heads. Already defeated in their hearts. Already defeated, and not only are they defeated, but they're spreading it. Because they're telling David, have you seen this giant? He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give the man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. I want you to see, I want you to see that the Israelite army was the one that called Goliath the giant. It's how they saw him. And they went from standing on a battleground to running in fear when he walked out of his camp. They went from being ready, shouting battle cries, getting to the ranks, getting to the battle lines in the Valley of Ella. And then when Goliath stepped out, Run away! They ran in fear and they spread the word. Did you see this giant? Did you see this giant? Did you see that giant? The people of Israel have a problem with seeing giants. In Numbers chapter 13, Joshua and Caleb and the ten spies, what did they say? We can't take the army, the people are giants. 
We look like grasshoppers compared to them. The people of Israel have a problem. <laughs> they see giants. I see giant people. <laughs> okay? So when God's got your back, I want you to realize that the size of someone does not matter. But your perception of that someone absolutely matters. And their perception of Goliath grew over time to where he was a giant that they were afraid of. They didn't fulfill their mandate. They didn't fulfill their purposes because they were afraid of this giant. Now, in, a, in, a, in the game of life or in a game or in a battle, you can be on one side or the other. You can either be on offense or you can be on defense. And when the Israelite army began to run, they were absolutely on defense. Now, how do you win a game? You win a game by scoring. You can't score on defense. Unless you're playing hockey and you hit it almost all the way across the ice. You can't score on defense. If you're on defense, you are getting your butt whooped. If you are always on defense. I should know. I play basketball. I'm not that tall, but you can cheer later. I played basketball for five years in this little peewee league, and it was awesome. I went from being a power forward to the center. Yeah, right? It's like, how does that work? I went from being the outside wing shooter to the center, playing. Right? And we got our tails handed to us because... We couldn't figure out how to play on offense. I'll never forget that coach. His name is Roosevelt. We called him Roach. Don't know why. Coach Roach. He would always tell us, how do you win? On offense. How do you win? On offense. We never played offense. <laughs> the ball would get stolen and everybody's back in their places. We'd get to running up and down the court, and all these little guys are huffing and puffing. And <laughs> you know? We were losing because we were on defense. And you heard the crowd, defense, defense. We're like, we're trying. But we knew we were losing because we were always on defense. Coach ran us through offense drills and through offense drills and through offense drills. And half of the problem was he never ran us through a defense drill. We didn't know how to capitalize on our defense. Now, that's not super significant to my point today. But that's, that's something that I've realized growing up is that it's okay, it's okay if you're going to be on defense, but don't be there long because to win the game, you need to be on offense. In order to score, you got to be on offense. And the Israelite people were nowhere close to offense. They went from standing on the battle lines to running away in fear. No one would step to Goliath. No one. Verse 26 says this. I want to highlight this one for you. David asked the soldiers nearby, So uh, what will a man get for killing this Philistine? 
and uh, ending this defiance of Israel? David was a little curious. And then he goes, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? I want to show you something here real quick. Who is this pagan Philistine that he is allowed to? For 40 days, man, they allowed this guy to come out and mock God and mock God's people and call them names and spit on them and scare them. He was allowed to do that because no one fulfilled their purpose, because no one was on offense, because no one could muster the courage. Everyone forgot whose army they were. And for a long time in some of our lives, we are allowing this champion that we have in our life to stick around because it's undefeatable, Wes. I've tried. It's undefeatable. This champion in my life has a perfect record, and I've lost every time. And so you're allowing this champion to stick around. You're allowing the taunts to happen. You have been given all authority, Matthew 28. All authority. Now, authority is this. Not just the, the, the mandate of, of uh, enforcing the rules. It's the gun to go with it. Does that make sense? One of my favorite characters growing up. The Andy Griffith Show. Barney Fife was one of my favorites. He had everything but the authority. He knew how to enforce the rules. He knew the rules. But there's a difference between someone who knows the rules and someone who enforces the rules. Gil knows that quite well, being a cop. There's a difference from when you get sworn in knowing the rules to being sworn in and handed a gun. And for so long, the Israelite army allowed this champion to defy the armies of God. And David came up and he said, who is this dude anyway? I will knock his block off. How dare he talk about my God that way? How dare he? I will put my foot he got upset, boy. He was like, I'm going to go get him. And then he heard the guys talking, and he said, so uh, what am I going to get? I mean, what is the person going to get if they kill the Philistine? And so he asked, and he asked, and the men gave David the same answer. Verse 27 says, they said, yes, that is the reward for killing this giant. And what I want you to see is the three things that David got for killing this giant. We're not going to the part of him actually killing him. When you fight, when you battle in the heavenlies, when you step off of the battleground or off of the battle lines and you engage in war, you don't do it for free. You don't. God's not going to ask you to do something that he's not going to reward you for. David said, what's the reward for the person who steps across the battle line, takes on this dude? 
Now, I love ministry. I've been in it for 14 years. I've done it for free many times. I don't have to do it for free now, thank God. But there are times where we've done ministry for free, and you get out and you go battle for free. And they, But what I want to show you is that when you begin to cross those battle lines, when you begin to get into the enemy's camp, and whenever you begin to take back the stuff, when you begin to see those souls and begin to harvest those souls into the kingdom for God, David said, what do we get? First of all, the Bible says that he would get a reward from the king. Now, there's a difference between a king and a rich person. Rich person, like Bill Gates, walks into a Lexus dealership and they say, would you uh, like to buy a Lexus today? Anyone you want. We'll, we'll, we'll order it for you. We'll special order it for you. You know, it'll be this price. But a king walks into a Lexus dealership and the owner steps out and says, here, please have this Lexus. Here, please take anyone that you want because we want to honor you, because you're the king, because no price is ever going to be good enough for the king to pay. See, when we have the riches or the wealth of the king, there's a difference. And when a king gave a reward, he didn't give a bag of silver. He lavished the family with monies. When you start seeing souls come into the kingdom, you're also going to see, and this is the only time I'm going to talk about finances myself, but you'll see finances come into the kingdom. When you see souls, you're going to see some financial growth, not only for yourself personally, but for the kingdom of God. That's not a guarantee, but I'm telling you, that's the first thing that David got when he fought the battle for the king. And when you begin to fight the battle for the king, you're going to see this, this increase. You're going to see the, the king's wealth is, is yours as well. Does that make sense? Second thing is he gets his daughter's hand in marriage. I don't know about you, but I was a 13-year-old boy before. Thinking about, ladies, sorry, that was a pun. Um, <clears throat> thinking about getting married at 13 is totally different today than it was back then. And I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure King Saul didn't have ugly daughters. He could have. But he was going to give a daughter's hand in marriage. So not only does he get some of the wealth of the king, he gets to hang out and become a part of the king's family. When we begin to fill our mandate, when we begin to see souls coming into the kingdom, we all become sons and daughters of the king. We all get to be a part of his family. We all get to have the, the bragging rights of, hey, I'm his favorite. Because you've become a daughter or a son of the king. David was outside of the king's kingdom. He was a part of the, Israelite, or a part of the Israelites, but he, he hadn't hung around the king, king's palace just yet. But now... After he defeated Goliath, he became the king's son. That's pretty significant. That's pretty significant. He crossed the battle lines, and he became the king's son. Not only do you have his wealth, but you get to hang out with the king. You get to call the king father. You get to call the king dad. You get to call him 
your father-in-law, whatever. But you get to have claiming rights and bragging rights that you're the king's kid. And the third thing and the final thing, I'm going to close with this, Jen, if you can come up. It says in verse 25, the end of 25, he will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. When you cross the battle lines, when you're fulfilling your mandate, when you're doing what God's asked you to do beyond standing on the battle lines, that's where your freedom begins. He gave total freedom to the man, total freedom from any financial responsibilities, total freedom from ever having to be taxed again, total freedom from ever having to be under the tyranny of, of what the king said because the king said it. He had total freedom. The person who defeats Goliath will now have freedom. But so many of us, I say us because I'm in that boat, put on our battle armor, we go to work every day, we stand ready for fighting, ready for battle, but we rarely ever engage. We rarely ever fight. Listen to what happens when you fight. You get the king's stuff. You become the king's kid. And you have total freedom. David stepped into that freedom. Now, not only we know the rest of the story, he killed, uh, he killed Goliath, he chopped off his head, brought it to the king. He actually brought it to the king. And the king said, all these things that I've said are the reward are now yours. And that's the first time that David and King Saul, second time actually, first time that they've actually connected on that level to where Saul fell in love with David and kept him. At the end of chapter 17, beginning of verse 18, he says, can your son stick around the palace because I'm very fond of him. See, David stepped out. He stepped across the battle lines. He took on the champion in the entire Israel army's life and he defeated him because he knew whose he was. He knew that he wanted that freedom. He knew that he wanted the, the wealth of the king. He wanted the stature and prosperity and the, everything that the king had. So he stepped out and he went and got it. The only way to win for the kingdom is to go fight. The only way to win the only way to score is to win souls. Our mandate as God's army today is to go out and make disciples. Is to go out, not only plant seeds, but harvest them. I am very, very honored to be able to bring this message to you today because there are so many times, so many churches, so many Christians that I know personally and have been one and still fight to not be one, if that'll make sense in a second, that get up every morning, 
say your normal prayer, read your normal scripture, walk out the door, ready for battle, but never fight, but never engage. And it's time that the body of Christ engage in battle. The average statistic goes like this. Two generations before me, the retention rate of a Christian all of their life, fresh out of high school even, was 60 plus percent. My parents' generation was 30 something percent. My generation in the teens, the generation after me, 4%. It's because the army of God stands ready for battle, but never does it. I urge you today, I I ask you today, I plead, we have a mandate, we have a purpose. Christianity isn't a get out of hell free card. It's a grow the kingdom mentality. It's a grow the kingdom mandate. We don't become Christians for us. We become Christians for everybody else. Bow your heads with me this morning.